Kyle Bonagura, you have written on not one, but two people who we will see front and center tonight during the college football playoff title game. Michigan head coach Jim Harbaugh and, of course, Washington quarterback Michael Penix Jr. Considering the journey it has been for both of them to get here, is this one game their defining moment? Yeah, I mean, with Harbaugh, he's just coached in so many big games at this point. I mean, three straight NFC title games, a Super Bowl. I mean, he did some nice stuff at Stanford. Third straight trip to the playoff. Melrose stopped. Michigan makes a stand and comes up with a milestone playoff victory. I mean, there's a lot more to Jim Harbaugh and his legacy at Michigan and as a football coach um, than just this one game. Of course, this will be the this will punctuate that journey, right? He's still yet to to win the big one at the end of the year. And so for sure, if, if he wins this game, that'll be what Michigan fans remember him um, for and, and, and what he'll be able to hang his hat on as a football coach. But it's, it's part of a bigger picture with Penix. I mean, it's this is the game, right? This will be the game that Washington fans remember him for forever if, if, if they win, right? If certainly if they lose this game, they'll be able to point to the Pac-12 title game and the, and the semifinal is, uh, is the things he did to elevate this program. But man, there's a, a, an opportunity here for Michael Penix to really cement himself as an all-time great. This is the ninth straight pass play for Washington. Penix going far side. If you're a quarterback, you finish second in the Heisman Trophy, you win a national title. I'm worried there's a, it's a small group of quarterbacks that have that on their resume, and so for him to do that um, with Washington would really, you know, uh, secure him a really special place in college football history. These days, we love to define legacies by championships. The big question is always, can they win the big one? Tonight, at the College Football Playoff National Championship in Houston, that question will be put to two men in particular, Michigan head coach Jim Harbaugh and Washington quarterback Michael Penix Jr. After failing to get to this point for so long, will Michigan finally take home a title? And what about Penix? Can he end this storybook rebirth in Washington with the only trophy he's ever really wanted? So today, Kyle Bonagura joins us to sort through how we got here and exactly what's on the line when these two teams take the field. I'm Clinton Yates, kiddos. It's Monday, January 8th. This is ESPN Daily. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home some huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
Okay, let's start with Coach Jim Harbaugh. While he's kind of always been known for his quirky personality, he was in fact suspended twice this season. What kept him off the field for six games? And how did his team react to all that this year? First of all, it's just wild the fact that we're here at a a national title game with a coach that has been suspended for essentially half the season. I don't know if we'll ever see that again in sports. Uh, So let's let's throw that out there at the top. But and and very different reasons. The first one, self-imposed by Michigan. After allegedly agreeing to terms with the NCAA on a potential suspension for head football coach Jim Harbaugh, the University of Michigan decided not to wait on the governing body's decision. Instead, they issued self-imposing sanctions and now Harbaugh will miss the beginning of the upcoming season. There was an NCAA in investigation into some violations during the COVID-19 dead period. Um, and what that was is, is Michigan really trying to, to stem off uh, larger punishment from the NCAA down the road, which we, we always kind of understood w- would happen in 2024. And so we, we still don't really know um, how uh, the self-imposed suspension will impact what the NCAA levies against Jim Harbaugh down the line. So yes, sits out the first three games of the year, you know, relatively minor punishment considering it's East Carolina, UNLV, and Bowling Green. The second one's a little bit more interesting, I think from a nationalist perspective, probably even locally too, right? The fact that this season has uh, been overshadowed in many ways by the the sign-stealing allegations, uh, you know, Connor Stallions uh, and, and everything that he orchestrated. That suspension for the final three games of the regular season came from the Big Ten office, um, really as a response to everything that has been, you know, alleged and is very public at this point. Um, he was allowed to coach during the week, which I think is probably where most of the important work goes in anyways, putting together a game plan, making adjustments, when you're at a place like Michigan, where you have a lot of really high, highly qualified assistants on the staff, but still, right, 6-0 with Jim Harbaugh not around, but it's the, the drop-off on, on, on game day um, certainly wasn't impactful for, for Michigan. Jim's a personality. We know that. What did the reporting that you and Paulo Ugetti and Adam Rittenberg teach you about this guy's particular coaching mantra? It's, it's a really interesting story to work on because um, it's something I've thought about for a long time is this idea that Jim Harbaugh always has enemies that exist um, in his life. Um, I, before I got to ESPN, I spent a year covering the 49ers when, when Jim was the head coach. It was in 2012, the year they went to the Super Bowl and have, have been around the Stanford program quite a bit where he, you know, he, there was a, a, a lot of those stories that have emerged as well. And he's an interesting guy because you always have a tough time understanding, like, is this real or is this an act for the media? How much of this is genuine? How much of this is part of his grand plan to, uh, to push his football team you know, in the right direction? He's, he's made it very clear that he feels that a team benefits from uh, the idea that there's people working against them or that there's people who don't believe in them. It seemed to work at Stanford because this is a program that it was bad for so long and he, and he flipped it pretty quickly. With the 49ers, there was some of that too, a little bit of a lesser degree because it's the NFL and you just have to operate a a little bit differently. But over the last year, we've seen a lot of that, right? We've seen Michigan, um, you know, the Michigan versus everybody mantra this year, which was very in line with the Stanford is us against the world um, type of deal, right? Even if it's orchestrated at times, there's a true belief there that helps get that extra percent out of his team. He can be grading to work with. He can be tough to work with. We've seen that every step of the way. But in the end, really, you can't you can't argue with the results. You mentioned the suspensions. We've talked about his viewpoint as to everybody else who is not a part of his program. But his dad was a coach. His brother's a coach. 
how his sister married a coach. Where does all of this even come from, from a personality standpoint, in your opinion, from a guy whose lineage is clearly one of leadership? Everyone you talk to about Jim says a lot of his, um, the way he views the game of football stems from his time as a player on um, at, at Michigan under, under Bo Schembechler. And Schembechler, of course, is you know, very famous, the phrase, the team, the team, the team. We want the Big Ten championship, and we're going to win it as a team. They can throw out all those great backs and great quarterbacks and great defensive players throughout the country and in this conference. But there's going to be one team that's going to play solely as a team. No man is more important than the team. No coach is more important than the team. The team, the team, the team. I mean, does a day go by where Jim Harbaugh doesn't you know, recite that to the media, to the teams? I imagine him at home, like waking up in the morning, waking up, looking at himself in the mirror and saying, the team, the team, the team. That's just, <laughs> um, it, you know, it's, every, it's in every part of, of his being. And so over the, you know, over the course of his career, I think he certainly has, um, you know, you, you pick up things from different points, obviously a long NFL career where you pick stuff up and you kind of put all of that together um, and, and, and apply it in a way where it's, it's, uh, it's very much a part of his coaching ethos. His mantra of the team that you mentioned he learned from Bo Schembechler, all of that attitude sort of follows him everywhere, including within the actual hierarchy of the school he coaches at, Michigan. What can you tell us about any friction he's had with the administration in Ann Arbor? Yeah, I mean, this was the case at Stanford. This was the case with the 49ers. Jim Harbaugh isn't exactly the easiest person to manage, right? Um, it's been, you know, widely reported at this point that him and Ward Manuel, Michigan's athletic director, aren't exactly in, in, in lockstep here. They've, you know, gone extended periods of time without much communication. Manuel said in June there's a, a healthy tension there between him and Harbaugh on certain topics, just like there would be with any close administrator-coach relationship. Uh, but they have differences, and and I think he's made it clear that Harbaugh has unwavering support, um, which is just going to be the case when you're uh, as successful as Jim Harbaugh has been. I mean, Manuel's technically Harbaugh's boss, but Harbaugh's the guy who's turned around Michigan football. Harbaugh's the more highly paid employee. He's the one with the power in that relationship, and he knows that, and he uses that. There's you know, there's some parallels there with his time in the NFL. He didn't get along with uh, the 49ers owner, Jed York, or the GM, Trent Baalke, it's different in the NFL. You're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna tell a highly rich guy who owns a team how he should behave. Um, but I think it boils down to, um, you know, Harbaugh doesn't want input on how to operate as a football coach from people who aren't football coaches. He's got the track record and he's got the experience, and he thinks that he deserves the benefit of the doubt. He's mastered this us against the world motivational plan. How do you think all of that? I don't want to call it bluster, but all of that that he brings to the table has factored in with his contract situation, specifically with Michigan. Yeah, I don't know if the, the us against the world thing necessarily has a big role in his contract, right? I think it, it's all about, you know, winning and, and winning at a high level, right? Uh, you know, we saw last year when when Michigan President Santa Ono um, made the announcement that Jim Harbaugh was coming back in the midst of the discussions about um, the NFL considerations, which was a little bit interesting. It's, it made it very easy to, to want to read into, okay, why is he the one making this announcement? It's different than how things usually operated and you know, we're here at a uh, at a place today going into the national title game where we don't know if Jim Harbaugh is going to be back, right? He he hired an agent who's got strong NFL ties, which, you know, on the surface, it seems like something you would do only if you had interest in returning to the NFL, right? The benefit of hiring someone without the relevant college experience to renegotiate your contract um, just doesn't make sense, right? And so I think everyone's kind of prepared for the possibility that at a minimum, he'll test the waters and kind of see what the NFL 
um, looks like and see what possibilities are there. You know, hasn't won a Super Bowl. His brother has. So you wonder, is that something that um, is really the driving force in, in what he wants to accomplish um, professionally? What do you think a national title does for the Harbaugh brand overall? When so many people are allegedly out to get you and then you actually get to the trophy, whether they take it away or not later, how much do you think this helps who he is as a guy in terms of that message and that mode of operation? Yeah, there's a degree of validation here, certainly. You know, whether that's for him or for other people, um, you know, here's the definitive proof that my way works if you're Jim Harbaugh, right? I mean, look, it already, it, we know it works. Here he is in the game, third straight playoff appearance, the NFL success. Like, that's enough to know that the guy can coach football, right? But still, he hasn't, he still hasn't won the final game at the end of the year to be, to be a champion as a college football coach or a coach at any level, really. And so that's a big legacy maker. We know he can coach, but, you know, until you win that big one at the end, there's, there's a tier system here on, on how he would be remembered, right? There's only a certain amount of guys who have won a national title as a head coach. Um, he's not in that group yet. He's not in that club. And so, you know, having that on his resume certainly will frame how he's remembered for a long time. Coming up, we'll head to the Pacific Northwest where Washington star quarterback Michael Penix Jr. has definitively stepped into the spotlight. Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you people wait until the last minute. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first one or for your fashionista mom who likes to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas that you can easily pick out something special to celebrate with them both. You can shop by price anywhere from 25 bucks and under to, say, 100 bucks and below. You can also sort by category like fragrance, handbags, and more, or gift lists like for the mom who has everything, or even pre-wrapped gifts for grandma. Find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung smart TVs. So, what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th, and it'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for mom easy this year. Head to Macy's.com slash giftfinder today. That's Macy's.com slash giftfinder. The NFL schedule drops this week, kiddos, and you can be there to catch all the action live and in person with Vivid Seats. Experience every touchdown, every tackle, and every eye-popping play of your favorite team. And to kick it off, Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN, is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Download the app or visit vividseats.com today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Moving on to Michael Penix Jr., who has etched his name all over the Washington Huskies record book. And no matter what, we'll probably never pay for a drink in Seattle ever again. Let's talk about this. How exactly did he get here with the Huskies? It's been a winding road. I mean, he is from Florida. He's a pretty good recruit restar caliber type guy had you know interest from places all over the country and initially commits to Tennessee and was all set to go there but after a coaching change his his offer got pulled and so he was left wanting to 
you know, commit early in the year and enroll in, in, in spring ball um, without a place to go. So he ends up pivoting to, to Indiana and spends four years there with a lot of ups and downs. I mean, he was able to break through pretty quickly and impact them as a true freshman. Penix, sidearm, caught. Touchdown, Indiana. But in each of his four years, uh, season ends with, with injury, a couple ACL tears. And for all the really impressive moments he had, I mean, Indiana was ranked third in the Big Ten in, in, in total offense in 2019, in Indiana of all teams, right? I mean, he was able to elevate that team to a place it hadn't been in, in a very long time. But the injuries were really kind of what probably defines his time there, the fact that he just couldn't stay on the field. Um, so when you know he got to the end of that fourth year, Indiana was ready to move on from him. As good as he, you know, had the potential to be, everyone saw that. They needed a fresh start. He needed a fresh start. So he decides to enter the transfer portal, which coincided with the time that Kalen DeBoer, who was Indiana's offensive coordinator in 2019, had just taken the job at Washington. It was very clear that he wanted to be reunited with DeBoer, who was the play caller in that in that 19 season, and um, arrives in time for spring ball and competes. Um, so he actually didn't even win the starting job until the spring. I think everyone kind of had an assumption that it would be him, but they didn't officially hand the reins to him until a couple weeks before the 2022 season was about to begin. Here we are two years later, 25-2 and two record, second in the Heisman voting, led the nation in passing each of the last two years and on the doorstep of, of college football immortality. You know, he's such an interesting example of the transfer portal in current day college football in that he went from one big D1 school to another one, a better school in terms of football, and managed to play just as somebody who covers and is around the game. How surprised were you that this actually worked? Yeah, there, there, you see, there's enough examples now at this point of, of situations where it has worked and situations where it doesn't, where it flames out, right? We've you know, five of the last seven Heisman Trophy winners are quarterbacks that started their careers at different schools. Jaden Daniels this year at LSU being the most recent. I mean, he started his career at Arizona State. And so I think this is really kind of how the sport's going to work moving forward. And certainly in this case, um, that Penix had worked with DeBoer before was, was such a benefit to have the familiarity with the offense and, and all of those things. I mean, we've seen that at a number of places, right? Caleb Williams moves to USC with Lincoln Riley. Cam Ward um, goes to Washington State with with his offense. was head coach turned offensive coordinator because it used to be if you're transferring in, like you were the one who had to get up to speed with how things were done there. But in the case of Penix and some of these others, they're the ones that were able to kind of relay what they understood about the offense to the players that they um, are, are, are not teammates with. And so that was that was a big benefit for for Penix. And now, you know, we, we saw them have immediate success last year. And then this year with all the receivers, you know, being in year two in the system, we've, we've seen things kind of jump to that next level. Well, speaking of, and you've written in depth about the culture and environment around the Huskies, and we'll get back to that in a little bit, but you've also obviously been following them on the field. We don't necessarily have to fully chalk talk this, but how do you think they match up from a football standpoint against Michigan? Yeah, I'm not going to be a claim to be an X's and O's expert, but like, I mean, Washington's offense, I've watched them closely for the last two years, and there really hasn't been a game that they've gotten into where you're expecting them to be slowed down. There's just, they've always, their offense has always been better, you know, in the rankings versus whatever defense they were going against. And, you know, that's not the case with Michigan. Michigan's the best defense in college football. But this Washington receiving core, rather, is, is as good as Ohio State. Uh, no, Roma Dunze is 
you know, should be a first round pick, top 10 type pick. Really, a, a lot of what Washington does is very opponent specific. They do a very good job of trying to identify a, a, opposing flaws and taking advantage of those. And that kind of seems like common sense to sit here and say that, right? But like, it's a, it's a whole nother thing to really notice that week in, week out. Because look, they, against USC, which doesn't have a good defense, Dylan Johnson runs for over 200 yards. USC going to shift around and respond to this and not ready for Dylan Johnson. Can they get him? Dive the pylon. Touchdown, Dylan Johnson. 52 yards. I mean, how many quarterbacks who, you know, how many teams with the, the nation's leading passer also had uh, you know, a 50-point outburst where the running back was was the key to the game, right? You know, it's funny because Harbaugh, for all of the us-against-the-world stuff, they're still ranked number one. The actual underdog here are the Washington Huskies, no? Yeah, Vegas says it, right? This is a kind of a, a, a situation that Washington has gotten used to. I mean, they were the underdog against Texas despite being the better seed. They were a nine-and-a-half-point underdog against Oregon in the Pac-12 title game despite the fact that they already beat Oregon during the season and had the nation's longest winning streak, it just seems absurd. Maybe I could have understood if Oregon was a few point under or a few point favorite because they had been playing better than Washington at the end of the year. Like that could have made sense, but nine and a half just felt like so disrespectful by the betting public to not have any faith in the team with the longest winning streak in in college football. And not only that, like they were an underdog against Oregon State toward the end of the year too, which Oregon State had a great year. But look, we're we're talking about a team that is. Uh, undefeated and playing for a national title. So, you know, Washington's talked a lot about how they feel that, they talk about it. Um, you know, it's frustrating to to some degree, right, to not to not have that respect. But as far as how it impacts the game, it's part of their story and, and something they've you know, learned to kind of embrace from that standpoint. But right now, I don't think that there's really any impact that we'll see, see in this game. Through all of this, it feels like Penix has been as humble as anybody you can see. You see him talking to his family after games, shouting out guys that are incarcerated from his old hometown. It really is there, the humility factor, and it's palpable. What do you think his teammates feel about that? It's funny. I went I went and visited with Michael um, before the Oregon games in the middle of the year at October, and he had one kind of request going into that interview and that was he didn't want to talk about the Heisman Trophy he wanted to talk about the team and the team success and was happy to talk about the offense and even his own play um, right but he didn't want it to be about a Michael Penix Heisman campaign um, the teammates have, have let loose a little bit since um, since Penix finished, finished second I was talking with, with Roma Dunze after the game against Texas in the locker room and, and he was talking about how, I don't know, I don't know if there's a, a, like a way to transfer the Heisman after the fact, but maybe we should consider that. Um, he said that, that they're undefeated, but the only team loss that they've had this year was Penix losing the Heisman Trophy. And you don't hear any of that from Michael. He's really, you know, kind of soft-spoken and very cognizant of not making it about himself, but the receivers have, have, have talked a lot about what a great player he is. Even defensive players who have to go against him in practice. They're fully on board with him as a leader. I mean, this was a guy who was named a team captain as a transfer going into last year, um, to, which kind of speaks to how much his teammates value um, what he brings to the table. Well, let's get into that for a little bit. What does Michael Penick bring to the table from a football standpoint that makes him so special as you see it? So for me, the first thing that stands out is just the deep ball accuracy. I mean, we saw it real early against Texas. There's that 77-yard pass um, to Jalen Polk. Play fake by Penix. They brought extra rushers to the horns, and the throw's right on target. Jalen Polk spins away. 
the ball couldn't have been anywhere else. It, he makes two or three of those throws. It feels like every game where you're like, wow, like I that doesn't look like he's open, but then the receiver, it's like right into his hands, and he's not not only does he catch it, but there's yards after the catch, which seems incredible to to watch that happen. It's it's so unusual that it feels fluky in the moment, but because he's been doing it at Washington for two years now, you you can't say that that it's a fluke. It's certainly part of his skill set. He's not a runner. I mean, he came up as a recruit, called him a dual threat guy. He's really athletic, but he's not a guy who makes his money um, get out, getting out of the pocket and, and taking off. Like He'll do it if they have to. But again, like I said earlier, he just has a, such a good understanding of the offense. It's, it's a lot of fun to watch. We know that Washington's last national title came in 1991. They beat Michigan in the Rose Bowl. My friend DeMarco Farr was on that team. He talks about it all the time. But do these Huskies have a sense of history about what's at stake? They do, and I was actually a little bit surprised to hear that because you don't you, you didn't hear a lot about it them talking about um, the ninety one team during the year. And but Adunze brought it up after the game against Texas. He said um, we talk about the ninety one team all the time. Um, he, he he, there's clear parallels there. They had a really good year in ninety where it really set high expectations um, going into that 91 year. And they went 12-0. and 0. They beat Michigan in the Rose Bowl to claim a, a share of that title. It's a standard that they've certainly been trying to live up to and match, right? Because if you're talking about a team that wants to be remembered as the best Washington team of all time, like that's that's the competition, right? It's the, it's the 91 team as far as being in the modern era of college football that they'll be compared to. What's interesting too is there's also the, the the Pac-12 piece of this, right? This is the last season of the conference as we know it before everyone scatters and 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 Washington departs for the Big Ten and will be playing Michigan next year as a conference opponent. So there's not only an opportunity here to be remembered as this great Washington team for what that is, but it's a way to you know, put an exclamation point on the Pac-12 conference, a team that has been a major part of college football, you know, for as long as any of us can remember, right? It goes back a hundred years. And so, you know, that's a conversation for another day. And, you know, for all those reasons, um, this has a chance to be, you know, one of the most historically important teams um, to ever play college football on the West Coast. Well, to quote a famous journalist, we're not going to let you get out of here without this. Who you got, Kyle? Yeah, that's so tough, right? I mean, look, I, I there's there's probably some sort of uh, bias here just because I've been around him. Not that I'm rooting for Washington. I went to Washington State to, th- to throw it out there as well. I, look, you've won 21 games in a row. I've been around him for two years up close and personal. And I just think that there's just a, it's a more fitting end to the college football season um, to have, you have this hated team in Michigan and you have this team that has certainly, I think, gained a newfound respect from all over, the, all over the country over the last few weeks, certainly um, it feels like the more fitting ending for, for Washington to win this game. Lastly, what's your setup going to be for the game? You going to be in the building or what, Kyle? Making my first uh, trip to NRG Stadium, be in the building tonight. Uh, be, it's my first national title game to cover as, as a reporter. Um, it's also going to be maybe a stressful one considering the stakes, right? I'm not going to be able to sit back and enjoy this football game in a way that everyone else will. Got to make sure that I'm able to kind of recount what happened uh, in writing almost immediately after the game is, is over. So I'll be trying to contextualize this um, from the moment the game starts up until you know late into the night, early in the morning, uh, as, as we get to all break this all down. Journalism, kiddos. Ain't it fun? <laughs> Thank you, Kyle. Thanks, Clinton. 
You could watch the college football national championship tonight on ESPN starting at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm Clinton Yates. This has been ESPN Daily. We'll talk to you tomorrow, kiddos.